podcast is brought to you by New Hope Baptist Church. For more information, visit the website newhope.net.au or follow us on social media. Well, good morning, New Hope. It's great to be together today as we continue to explore this series, Life in the Spirit. At the end of this sermon this morning, we're going to be sharing in communion. So you might like to go and find yourself something to drink and something to eat so we can participate in that beautiful um, rite together. We've been reflecting on two significant things, the way in which the spirit forms us into new human beings, enabling us to experience the life, uh, experience life as part of God's new creation. And today we begin to open up a third theme new communities, how walking together in the fellowship of the spirit, we are being formed into a new community, the church that stewards God's resources and makes the love of Jesus dramatically visible in our city. Over the coming weeks, we'll see this clearly as we study together five different New Testament churches. Today, we begin with the church in Jerusalem and we begin there because the church begins there. The Christian church begins in Jerusalem where after Jesus' death and resurrection, the believers awaited and received the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And following Peter's powerful sermon proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus, we begin to see God form God's people into an incredible new community. But what are the marks of this new community? What sets them apart from those that are around them? Acts chapter 4 offers a rich description of what new life among this new community of believers looks like. So let's open our hearts as we listen to Annie read the scriptures. Hi, I'm Annie Charlesworth and I'm a young adult group leader. The passage today is from Acts 4, 31 to 37. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. In my final year of high school, just before my 18th birthday, I became an exchange student. I went to live halfway around the world with a family in a tiny village in Friesland in the far north of the Netherlands. The language was strange, the food was strange, and the people were strange, the family that I'd moved in and were living with. And I don't mean strange in terms of weird. What I really mean is that they were strange in terms of being strangers, as in different, as in, gee, these people aren't like my family. 
They ate bread with chocolate sprinkles on for breakfast. They read the Bible together every night before leaving the dinner table. And they really did bike everywhere, even when the snow was horizontal. My parents believed in boundaries. Actually, that's not true. My parents believed in boundaries topped with barbed wire surrounded by a moat and a field of landmines. There were just some things as kids that we could do and some things that we couldn't do. And one of those things was that we had to tell mum exactly where we were and who we were with and what we were doing. I didn't quite realise that not everyone grew up this way until after a few weeks of living in the Netherlands. I kept telling Mem, my host mother, where I was going and who I was with and what I was doing. And Mem kept saying back to me, you must yourself weten, which literally means you must know it yourself. It took me a while to work out exactly what she was saying. See, Mem's philosophy of parenting was learn to make your own decisions. You must know it yourself. You've got to experience the consequences of your choices and then you'll learn. During my year as an exchange student, I'd expected to learn a new language and a new culture and so much more. But what I didn't expect is that through living away from my own Australian family, I would come to learn so much more about them. The cliche about not being able to see the water you're swimming in really is true. It was only when I experienced living with another family that I came to see my own family more clearly. Every family is a universe unto itself. Every family has its own quirks and rituals, its own eccentricities, in-jokes, rules and pathologies. When we are baptised through the Spirit, we are raised into new life and we are enfolded into the family of God, which is the church. You and I have been adopted as sons and daughters of God. And that means that through this relationship with God, we are being reparented. It's what Jesus called being born again. We are reparented or reborn as we are given a new way to live, a new set of instructions and a new foundation for our identity and a new example of what being a human being created in the image of God looks like. Jesus' insistence that we must be born again is a directive to go back to the very beginning, to our earliest developmental stages and relearn how to live on an entirely new basis. The relational inheritance we've received from our earthly parents, however good or however terrible, shouldn't be confused with the inheritance we received from God our perfectly loving heavenly parent. The formation we've received through our families with their quirks and rituals and eccentricities and in-jokes and rules and pathologies shouldn't be confused with the spiritual formation that forms us into the image of Christ. Now, if I'm trampling a little on the sense of love and loyalty that you have for your family and you're thinking, I'm not really sure I want to be reparented, my parents are just fine, you might want to brace yourself for the astonishing words of Jesus who said, whoever comes to me and does not hate 
father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself, can't be my disciple. Did Jesus just really say, I must hate my family? I thought Christians were the ones who loved family values. And of course, we are, but those family values aren't about 3.25 well-behaved children living in a neat suburban home with two loving parents, a golden retriever and a summer holiday at the beach. They're about the values of the kingdom of God. Jesus is provocatively poking us in the chest and saying, if you want to come and follow me, you've got to leave the baggage you're carrying behind. Otherwise, you will never truly enter into the family of God. And part of that baggage includes leaving behind the patterns we've been socialised into in our families of origin. So yes, we've got to stop counting the ice cream scoops and the value of the gifts and the size of the inheritance. We've got to stop competing with our siblings for attention and recognition. We need to give up focusing on who's to blame and who should apologise first and quit using silence and distance as a weapon and turn off the tap of constant advice giving and stop meddling in other people's lives and learn to mind our own business. And can we please just have one conversation where you don't have the last word? Sorry, I just think I started talking to my own family out loud. But yes, it's, it's right and good that we leave all of those things and more behind. But life in the family of God isn't a softer, kinder version of your own family with the dysfunction sanded off. The family of God is to express the family likeness. Just a few pages back from our Bible reading, after the tongues of fire had receded, Peter gets up and he addresses the crowd. And what does he preach? He preaches about the resurrection. Here in our reading in Acts 4, after the believers prayed and the walls shook and the Holy Spirit filled them yet again, what did they speak with such boldness? Well, they spoke the word of God that Christ died and Christ has been raised by God. And when the apostles got up to testify, what did they testify to? They testified with great power to the resurrection of Jesus. And what did Paul say when he was on trial? He said, I am here because of the resurrection. See, in the entire book of Acts, to preach the gospel is to witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what does that mean? Well, it meant that Jesus Christ has been elevated to the right hand of God and is Lord of the church. That's what Luke says. Luke says that the resurrection means that Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God, pouring out the Holy Spirit for power and for guidance upon the church. And, but what does the resurrection really mean? Well, it means that the life of Jesus of Nazareth has been vindicated and affirmed by God and therefore this is the life and this is the way that the church is to live. What Jesus did, we do. What Jesus said, we say. The wonderful preacher Fred Craddock 
once said that the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts tell the same story twice. Jesus' story and the church, the church's story is told in the same way. What he did, they did. He fed, he loved, he cared, he preached in Luke's Gospel. And then in the book of Acts, they fed and they loved and they cared and they preached. If we are to reflect God, our Heavenly Father, we must do what God does. God parents the parentless and welcomes those with no societal protection into God's family. And we must do the same. God gives the desolate and the despairing a place to live. And we must do likewise. If we are to follow Jesus, we must take seriously Jesus' work in making visible, available and effective in the world God's presence and love. This is how the word becomes flesh. The church in Jerusalem didn't have a smart strategic plan. What they did have was a crystal clear model. Jesus welcomed the outcasts and embraced the untouchable. Jesus ate with all kinds of people and offered healing and help and a community who cared when no one else did. And so this is what the first church in Jerusalem began to do. And they were so committed to doing it that they committed everything they had. They sold property and cashed in shares and withdrew some of their savings. They pulled all of the resources of their time and their talents and their finances so that there wasn't a needy person among them. And if you've read the story all the way through into the end, you'll know that it wasn't actually easy, that there were difficult issues to be faced and challenges to be surmounted. There were divisions to be overcome both within the church as well as the difficulty of welcoming to the same table people who have vastly different needs and different histories and who speak different languages. But when the community of believers, when the family of God radiates God's likeness, the most extraordinary things happen. Extraordinary things happen when the church understands that the resurrection of Jesus isn't an isolated historical event frozen in the past. Extraordinary things happen when the church understands itself as a new community birthed out of the new reality the resurrection of Jesus creates. The church is the body of Christ. That's what we say, isn't it? It is the community through which Christ wants to encounter the world as saviour and liberator and healer. One of the ways we lose our way as the family of God is forgetting that the family of God is blessed to be a blessing, that God has given us a purpose and a mission beyond the comforts of being together. One of the great dangers is that You and me as members of this new community fall into the trap of thinking that, well, Jesus just wants us to be nicer and kinder and more generous people who lend our neighbours a hand every once in a while. Actually, 
Jesus wants us to be so profoundly uncomfortable with the status quo, so disturbed by the ways in which our culture dehumanises and diminishes and enslaves and oppresses people, that we would give our very lives and all that we have to birthing a new way, right here, right now in the midst of the old one. So what are the marks of this new community birthed by the Spirit? What sets them apart from those around them? It's not that they were nicer people with a heart for philanthropy. It's that they were witnesses to the resurrection. And what does it look like to be a witness to the resurrection? It means living out of the belief that God gives life to the dead. Just think about it. Moses was a stone-dead murderer before God called him to lead his people to freedom and new life. Elizabeth and Zachariah held a bag of dead dreams in their hands before God put a squirming baby giggling with new life into them. Zacchaeus' life was deadened by greed and wealth until Jesus called him down from that tree and invited himself over for lunch. Paul was dead with religious zealotry before he encountered the risen Christ. Jesus of Nazareth was dead. You ask the soldiers who put the sword in his side, he was dead. You ask the women who wrapped his body and laid it in the tomb, he was dead. But God gives life to the dead. And you and I, we are dead in our transgressions and sin But God has made us alive. The resurrection of Jesus has created a new reality and part of this new reality is a new community, the church, the family of God who have left the baggage of the past behind to live out this new reality. The story we read in Acts about the church in Jerusalem shows us a picture of the family of God of who we are and what we can be. And I'm so grateful that God continues to share this vision and this reality. Just recently, one of our senior New Hopers sent an email that Alan shared with the pastoral team, and it contained a vision or a dream for our community here in Whitehorse. The dream was about the many ageing and disabled people living in our community who are marginalised, whose lives are not valued, in our culture, with recognises people for what they can do, not who they are. This faithful New Hoper was calling the church, this church and the churches of Whitehorse, to stand with these people publicly, assuring them that they are important people because of God's love. And he was calling the church to be a caring community, which God intended the church to be. It was such a beautiful and such a challenging vision. I can only imagine that this follower of Jesus after all of these years um, has been given new eyes to see this wonderful kingdom of God emerging in these midst. This is the fruit of a long obedience in the same direction. A faithful follower of Jesus who looks out into the community and to the world and who sees through the eyes of Jesus the possibility, the potential for new life. Well, we have an opportunity this morning 
to center our lives on Jesus, to experience this new life ourselves, and to be reparented by God. So I want to invite you to come to this table, this Lord's Supper, to drink and eat the bread of Christ, not merely trusting that we will be forgiven. I want to invite you to come trusting so much more than that. Why don't you come trusting that Jesus himself can be trusted? Why don't you come trusting in God's resurrecting power this morning to raise you up to new life in the places in which you are dead? So we come trusting that when we commit ourselves to follow Jesus, that he will lead us in all of the ways of life. That Jesus alone is the key to every aspect of our lives here on earth. That he can and will speak to the depths of our pain and suffering and bewilderment. And that he will lead us into joy and into peace. If we're willing to open ourselves to the lifelong commitment of discipleship, of apprenticeship to Jesus, of taking on the family likeness, of being reparented by God. Yes, this is the work of the Spirit in us who brings about this transformation, but it is us and us alone who must make the choice to follow, who must commit ourselves to a lifelong and careful learning from Jesus in all of the circumstances of our life. So as we take this bread and drink this cup, We receive from Jesus his life in the places in which we need it. His love poured out for us on the cross. And we receive again a vision of this kingdom that he longs to bring in all of its fullness. And we affirm each of our choice, our desire to follow him as our Lord, to be reparented by God and formed into a new community of love. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you for this moment that gathers all of us, the parts of us that are frayed and fragmented, the parts of us that are dead and hurting and longing. God, we invite you in this meal to unfold us into your wholeness to pour out your love and to bring your peace. God, we thank you that you are a gracious and generous God who forgives and sets us free over and over again. So we come to this moment confessing that there are things that have not met the standards to which you call us. Standards of love, standards of hope and gentleness and kindness. And so, God, we pray that you would release us from these things. Forgive us, Lord, for all of the ways in which we have failed, failed your goodness. God, we thank you that your grace is made new every morning for us. And so we receive this great gift of newness again this morning. Lift our eyes to the heavens, God. Grant to us a vision of your kingdom coming around us in our 
family, in our home, in our street, in our neighbourhood, in this nation and across all the world. Animate us with the power of your resurrection so we might give our lives and everything we have for the sake of its coming. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Scripture reminds us that I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he come. God, the source of all hope, offers to us now these signs of hope and invites us to share in their story. Won't you eat the bread of life and drink from the cup of joy? We drink and eat together in remembrance and thanksgiving for him. God, we thank you for this reminder this morning that you are always with us, that you will never forsake us nor leave us. Thank you, Jesus, for the ends that you went to to save us. God, we pray that you would pour out your spirit upon new hope, that you would refresh us and renew us and bind us into the family of God so we might demonstrate your likeness to all we meet today and all the days to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's worship together.